Welcome back to From the Bridge. I'm Rick Jones, and we have an incredibly special show today with the great Steve Robinson, who served as the chief marketing officer at Chick-fil-A. Steve recently retired and wrote a book about his days at Chick-fil-A called Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A. He's going to share a lot of great stories about being part of a team that built one of the best companies in the world. But first, I want to set the stage by talking about culture. Every organization has a culture. I often laugh at our conversation about immigration here in America. I'd like to respectfully remind all of you that everyone in this country either is an immigrant or came from descendants who were immigrants. And that includes our Native Americans who walked across the Bering Sea at some point. That's right. None of us were from here. And all of the cultures they brought with them created our uniquely American culture. Now, you guys all know that I'm a big foodie. That's why I tell you someplace good to eat each week. One of the projects we're working on in both our American heritage and our food and tourism verticals here at Fishbait is a concept we're calling United Taste of America. We want to organize a number of our great ethnic food festivals, many of which were actually started by descendants of immigrants or immigrants themselves. And we want to organize these festivals in order to attract foreign visitors to the United States for them to come and see how we've interpreted their foods like tamales or pierogies or blintzes or how we've adapted and made things like gumbo or boudin or the various ways we cook barbecue. I was at a lecture once on the origins of Southern foods, foods that African slaves brought like okra and peanuts or foods from the Scotch-Irish, those were my people, like burgoo or foods like chicken and dumplings. Someone asked the panel, about chicken fried steak. And the panel was baffled and did not have any answer to where it came from. I then, from the audience, reminded everyone that chicken fried steak originated in Texas from German settlers. You see, chicken fried steak is simply Wiener schnitzel with bad meat. What they did was they'd take the tough meat from a longhorn steer, they'd pound it into submission, they would batter it up in flour, fry it up in lard, and then put milk gravy all over it. <laughs> and that way they could cover up the bad meat. The truth is I love chicken fried steak even better than I love a grilled filet. So the foods of our country add to our culture, but so does our religions, our music, our traditions, and yes, our values. Because I believe culture starts with values. At Fishbait, we try to lead with our values. We run a family business. <laughs> In fact, we do have several immediate family members actually on our team. But we treat all of our associates like family. I worked at a summer camp one year, and Jay Rhodes, who was a college basketball coach at Limestone College, had a great saying. He would say, hey, babe, anybody can go when they're well. 
Well, last year we were not well. We had little to no business after March. But if you say that you run a family business and that everyone that works with you is family, then you actually have to walk that talk. And what do we do? We did not let anybody go. We cut salaries. We took some PPP money. We took out an SBA loan. And yes, the leading shareholder, and that would be me, put in personal uh, money from our retirement fund to make sure that we could take care of all of our people. See, we believe people are more important than profits, (laughs) but we do believe in profits. (laughs) And we have a plan to share the profits with all of our associates But we also pay what we call our business tithe. We give 10% of our annual profit to charity. Our values say that capitalism without compassion, capitalism without giving back is, is really a sin. Our culture is based on feeding sheep. We feed our families first. We take care of our clients. We pay our vendors the same day the invoice arrives. We work pro bono for a number of charities and we put our money where our mouth is. Well, why do we do this? Because our collective value system says all of these things are simply the right things to do. We're going to talk a lot about culture this season on From the Bridge because culture is the foundation for success, and we all strive to be successful. Let's jump back up on the old soapbox. Have you seen where beef has become the enemy of the people? Or at least some people? Seems cows can cause some pollution, and they use a lot of grass, which uses a lot of water. Even the president has jumped on that bandwagon. I wonder if the folks uh, that are against beef also want to get rid of the Chick-fil-A cows who actually tell you to eat more chicken. I told you earlier in this program that I like chicken fried steak a lot. I also like hamburgers. I like big juicy grill steaks. And I like flank steak tacos. We just added the National Cattlemen's Beef Association and their national campaign, Beef, It's What's for Dinner, as a new sponsor of our ESPN Events Tailgate Tour. We're going to be sampling beef kebabs at college football games throughout the season. It reminds me of an old ad they once did with the actor James Gardner. Now, for those of a certain generation, you may remember James Gardner first as Brett Maverick on the old TV show and later as Jim Rockford on the Rockford Files. In this commercial... James Gardner said he did not like putting any vegetables on his beef kebabs, just meat, because he said that's why God invented salad. My sentiments exactly. Now, if you don't want to eat beef, I have no problems with that. I'll just leave more for me. My special guest, Steve Robinson, knows a lot about culture because he both worked in a virtuous culture and contributed to make it better than he found it. Let's welcome Steve to the bridge. Hey, Steve, thanks for being with us today. Rick, it's an honor. It really is. 
Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A, I'm going to tell you, it is a terrific book. It is so good in so many ways. <clears throat> what made you write it? Uh, well, I'd been, I'd been out of Chick-fil-A about a year. I was still on their board, <clears throat> but uh, the business was growing so rapidly, and it still is, uh, that I was knowing a, an increasing noticing an increasing number of staff and operators who really didn't understand the stories, uh, if you will, the cultural roots of the business and leadership uh, was running around like you know, cats with their tails on fire, and nobody had time to step back and seriously think about how do we document our history. So I asked Dan Kathy if he'd he'd give me the rights to do it. He said, go for it. And, uh, so having 35 years in the organization, uh, literally kind of growing up with the brand, uh, I decided I want to, I want to write this book first and foremost for the Chick-fil-A family. Um, and as it, as it developed and I shared drafts with other people, uh, they encouraged me to, you need to publish it and make it available for the public too. So, uh, that's how it got started. And, uh, it was, it was fun to write it because I had a lot of files, a lot of notes, but my Chick-fil-A experience was so memorable. Um, I was able to do almost all of it from memory. Um, and I don't know that I could do that now, <laughs> but when I wrote it, I was. So it, it was it was a great experience to get it on paper, and and uh, I have so much respect for Truett and his family, and the opportunity they gave me. So uh, that's I wrote it first and foremost for the for the business. Well, you truly honored him and honored the family and honored the legacy. Yeah. In a way that I think no outsider could have ever done. You know, yeah. I, you know, I've no, seen a lot no, of books where somebody no. comes in and they, they aggregate, you know, they, they interview, they do stuff. And, yeah, they can weave a story, but. Not the same. It's not the same. You know, the fact yeah. that you had been there through just the entire evolution and, um, you know, I think was what made the book so strong. But. You know, you mentioned Truett, but you also talk a lot in the book about mentors in your life. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And it started with your father. Um, yes, it did. You know, so talk about some key learnings from him. Well, my dad uh, was raised on a hybrid seed corn uh, farm up in middle Ohio, just north of Columbus. He was one of six children. And uh, he loved he loved farming. He loved the seed corn business. But he, even though he grew up in Ohio, he hated he hated the winters. So in 1948, he moved to Foley, Alabama, uh, near Gulf Shores. Smart birds so, fly south. He was a smart right, bird. Boy. That's right. That's exactly right. So I was born and raised in Baldwin County, and uh, and I was I gr literally grew up in the business and in the fields and processing corn, and then. Um, uh, later in life, uh, I won't go into all the whole story. It's in the book, but the uh, the agricultural, the farm subsidy program uh, really put him out of business because it was paying farmers in that part of the country more money to put their land in trees 
um, you don't than, mean you don't mean that federal government intervention yes, actually had yes. a problem, created a problem. Gee, yes, it did. Yes, yes, it did. Yes, and so he was he was leasing land to raise corn. He couldn't pay farmers enough to compete with uh, that 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 evolution of of subsidy. So anyway, uh, he started a small manufacturing business. So all that to say, particularly after he got into the manufacturing business, he 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 made. Um, uh, a hand nut gathering tool, uh, automatic water fountain for livestock, uh, both of which he created, uh, a burger press, a hand burger press. He created all these just out of his own observations and experiences. And did, and so I traveled with him as he's trying to sell them. And so I'm getting to my punchline. The punchline is I, I discovered after being on the road with him that nothing happens if somebody doesn't sell something. And I enjoyed working my, with my hands. He taught me how to do mechanical stuff. And, but quite frankly, I was fascinated by the whole process of, of sales and marketing. And <clears throat> that was the early days of brand management evolution with companies like P&G, Colgate, et cetera. And I fell in love with the whole idea of, of building brands and uh, the, the, particularly the communications, creative side of marketing. So, um when I finished uh, my marketing degree at Auburn, that's how I mo- chose that major. Um, I chose to pursue a, a master's in journalism and advertising at Northwestern. And um, after marrying my college sweetheart, Diane, who's now been my wife and best friend for, friend for 49 years, uh, she and I loaded up and headed to Northwestern, and I got a graduate degree in in uh, in that major, as opposed to just just an MBA, I think you mentioned a, a specific professor there that um, yeah I did had yeah. really so impacted of, you yeah. So in the spirit of mentorship, Dad was an incredible example of entrepreneurism, hard work, tenacity. Um, just he just basically showed me the value of of what the free enterprise system in America allows you to do. Whether you're successful at it or not, you you can pursue your dreams. Then when I had this decision to make about what do I do after undergraduate school, my professor uh, at Auburn, who also became dean, George Horton, <clears throat> walked in one day, no appointment. I said, Dr. Horton, I, I feel like I want to do something other than just go straight into sales work. I have an interest in communications, marketing communications. And he immediately said I'd recommend three graduate programs. One of them was Northwestern. That was the one I preferred. And he was so kind to get on the phone and arrange an interview for me with the dean there, uh, Vernon Freiberger, who uh, told him, well, the class is already closed. <clears throat> but he, George Horton convinced uh, Dr. Freiberger to give me an interview. And I went up along with Diane and uh, my parents came along as escorts, and uh, we I got in. Two weeks later, I found out I got in. So George was a great mentor in, in school, but my gosh, his assistance to get me into graduate school was huge. Uh, I was a TI for a year. I had a, a really good manager there. They were breaking into semiconductor consumer products, um, but they were they were an engineering company. And uh, it frustrated me. And I got a call one day um, 
from Dan Howells, who was the director of marketing at Six Flags Over Texas. He said, I got an opening out here. Uh, the short of it is I went out and interviewed with him. Um, if you know anything about Six Flags, particularly back in the 70s, they were a, they were one of the leading, right up there with Disney, they were one of the leading marketing companies in the entertainment industry, marketing culture, brand culture. Um, spent an entire day interviewing and got the job. And so the short of that story is I worked for Six Flags for um, eight years, starting in Texas, most of it in Atlanta, where I became the director of marketing at Six Flags Over Georgia. I succeeded one of those mentors, Spurgeon Richardson, who became the general manager of that part. Um, Spurge was just a, a tremendous influence on me in terms of thinking, always thinking outside the box, thinking about how to partner with with sponsors, as he used to say, how do we use other people's money? Because <laughs> we never had enough of our own. Um, but his his love for building a guest experience and brand permeated the business. I think he was ahead of his time. I do too. Um, and I, you know, and when he ran the Convention Investors Bureau, I thought yes, he was well ahead yes, of his time. That's you know? exactly right. I mean, he was yeah. one of the great guys. You know, we kind of we may have even intersected a little bit. I worked for Bob Cohn for two years oh, yeah. at Cohn and oh, Wolf, yeah. and we, yes. we had both the, the Six Flags and the Chick Fil A accounts at the That's time. Right. And I got That's to work right. with Clisby Clark, um, at you know, at McCann, who I, again yep. I, I thought was one of the great underrated admin yes. in the country. Yes, um, yes, you know. The, well, Clisby was instrumental in helping us develop. Um, Probably, I, I, I'm biased, but I think probably the, the greatest brand-oriented advertising campaign Six Flags ever had, uh, the theme was Hug Your Kids the Six Flags Way. And he, we produced it. He did the creative. He did the music. You knew him. He could sit down at the piano and create. Um, and it was such a popular campaign the year we introduced it in Georgia. It spread to the other parks the next year. So I learned a lot from that experience about creating advertising that wasn't designed just to drive transactions, but was actually designed to create an emotional connection with your audience. Um, Bob Cohn, you mentioned him. He, he was the first agent who we hired. Um, he, had, he had the Six Flags accounts, but I hired him at Chick-fil-A, and we were his full, first full-time retainer account. And uh, he always says that we helped get them you know, really out of out, off off the off the launching pad because we brought them that guaranteed monthly cash flow. But they they did an awesome job for us at Six Flags and at at, at Chick Fil A. I got an email from Bob last week, um, Steve, where he was telling everybody that after you know fifty four years in Atlanta, he was they were moving back to Tuscaloosa. Yes. Yeah, and I, I thought, it's good for you. I mean, yes. he's got family yes. over there. and uh, Well, he got his degree there. Yeah, he, yeah. he edited a newspaper there. He worked in Montgomery as an, an editor. Absolutely. He he loves, um, even though I'm from Auburn, yeah. I, he, loves, he, lo- <laughs> right. he loves the Crimson Tide. I understand. Yeah. But so I thought- Bob was another one of those, those mentors that taught me um, how to use PR for something other than just press releases. Uh, how to use media relations to create events and stories that had brand value and 
uh, create an interest um, around the brain other than just, you know, some fact, piece of factual news. And so they were, they were a major influence on our early days of creating events at stores. And uh, obviously events became a, a major tool in our marketing kit at Chick-fil-A over time. But he was a, he was a catalyst in us having those experiences early. Um, so then when I get to into the, into the Chick-fil-A environment, um, and I, I would say back to, to Six Flags for a minute, there were a couple other guys, uh, Byron Carruthers at Six Flags over Texas, Jim Pemberton, who was the, the uh, VP of sales for Six Flags over Texas. These guys were great mentors to me as a young executive at Chick-fil-A. And then George Delano, who was a senior VP of marketing for all the parks, really helped me think through the discipline of how do you create strategic marketing plans. And, we, we, um, we have a lot of um, young people that listen to our our podcast, you know, it's aimed at the sponsorship industry and we, yeah. we've done a really good job of penetrating the university systems to, to let students know, Hey, this is a free resource. We're bringing on people that can help you. And I always like to talk about lessons from each thing. And two things from this discussion so far have come out and came out in your book were number one is the ability to be attentive to those around you. I mean, you, yes. you, you looked at these people and said, man, I, I can learn something here. Yep. And secondly, the thankfulness of the people that helped you along the way came uh, through yeah. loud and clear in the book that yeah. I think is, you know, a lot of people, you know, <laughs> a lot of people think they do it by themselves. Uh, no. No, they don't. No, um, no. It, yeah. Well, you know, Rick, even after I got to uh, Six Flags Over Georgia, I still made regular trips back to Dallas to spend time with Byron and Jim Pemberton, because those guys were a wealth of experience. Um, so um, I, had, I had great mentors uh, w- within the Six Flags organization. They were very, very gracious to me. They gave me a chance to be a marketing director at the age of 28. Um, that was a risk. Um, I, I probably thought I knew it all, but I, fortunately I had enough mentors around me to help me figure out what, what mistakes I didn't need to uh, remake. <laughs> and uh, they were great help. And uh, then, of course, Spurge was a friend and a mentor even after I left. He was he was very gracious when I made the decision to go to Chick-fil-A. Um, so I had a relationship with Chick-fil-A prior to working with him. The, the COO, Jimmy Collins, um, <laughs> he wasn't a mentor yet. But you're talking about being observant. He was observant. I'd approached them about building a, a restaurant in the park back in 79 or 80. Uh, that deal did not work out. He wanted to make money at it. And uh, our position was you're going to build the brand, you're going to create trial, but Six Lakes is going to make money. So that didn't work for him. So that, that dropped through the crack. But it was in late 1980 that he's the one that reached out to me and said, look, we've been looking for a marketing director. We don't have a marketing department, and uh, your name keeps coming up. Would you have an interest in talking? And <laughs> Rick, when he said we don't have a marketing department, I, I, in the back of my mind, I thought, well, I already knew that, or you would have done that <laughs> deal with me. <laughs> but but that you know that I was curious because I'd worked now for two, principally three three corporations. 
And I and I looked at Texas Instruments in Texas and Six Flags Over Georgia as three corporations, three three corporate environments. And uh, here was one that was different. And the key part that was different, they, those three were all part of corporately owned entities, um, particularly within Six Flags, very very marketing oriented, but also very transactional oriented. You, yeah. you don't drive you don't drive attendance. You don't have a job. Um, very quarter, you know, cash flow quarter earnings, um, focused both there and TI. And I walk into the Six Flags process and start interviewing. And by the way, it wasn't going to be, I thought it was going to be maybe two or three days. It turned out to be over almost five months, but I walk into that environment of, of interviewing and I discover real quick, um, they were not, Truett Cathy was not focused on transactions. He was focused on building relationships. First and foremost, with the operators running his restaurant. Secondly, with the staff he recruited. And then thirdly, and most importantly, the customers. And he had figured out if he did a good job of picking the right partners, relationships, as operators and his staff, he would attract and keep customers. Because he'd learned that lesson running the dwarf house and on the south side of Atlanta for over 27 years before he even created the Chick-fil-A sandwich. And uh, he was a relationship-oriented guy. I unpack the, the long story in the book, but in my last interview with him, I asked him, uh, what are you looking for in the ideal marketing candidate? And he said, uh, I have no idea. All I know is whatever it is, I don't want to do it. Now I've been interviewing almost five months, and I'm doing. And, and the I'm boss says it. he doesn't want to do it. I'm, I'm doing it still, but he, he was. He, that was only the first part of his answer. He said, "The the real thing I'm interested in, Steve, is who you are. I, I want to know that you and I can have fun together, and, it, and I can trust you. Because if we invite you to come here, uh, it's my expectation you're not going to go anywhere else. Now I've had." four different jobs in eight years. And that, that's a bit of a paradigm shift right there. Yeah. And then he said something, Rick, that really, it, it was unusual at the time, but it was absolutely true of that culture. We don't hire culture. We, we, I'm sorry, we don't train culture. We hire it. Uh, really the better word is we don't, uh, we don't recruit culture. Uh, we, we don't, we don't train culture. We recruit it. And get my words right here. They were, they recruit. They they don't hire. Yeah, and they recruit through a cultural litmus that puts heavy focus on three big things: competency. Yeah, they got to be able to do the job. And, and true said, I'm trusting Jimmy and others to figure out if you can do the job. But they also pay a lot of attention to character, and then chemistry. How, how is this person going to deal with other people? Can can they develop natural fellowship? Um, are they a team player? And then Detroit's other point around character, can I trust them? Is there integrity there? Because he, he knew that if he could trust people, if they were competent, if he could trust them, and if they were they developed leadership ability, and not only in themselves but others, then he could, he could empower them. And uh, at the back end of that 35 years at Chick-fil-A, I can tell you that Truett never called me to his office one time to say, why'd you do that or you screwed up? Now, I did. I did. I made some mistakes. But he never did. He never did anything that suggested he didn't trust me in that job. 
And anytime I took a proposal to him that was significant <clears throat> uh, to the to the direction or the investment of the business, uh, he knew I'd already done the homework. And his question was always the same, Rick. He says, is this going to help the business? Do you think this is going to help the business? And when he said that, he, what he really meant is this going to help the reputation of the brand. He, he wasn't talking about short-term sales. Yeah. He said, is this going to help the business, the health of the business? I said, sure, I wouldn't recommend it if it wasn't. And uh, his answer was always the same. He said, okay. So whether it was a few thousand dollars or or literally <laughs> tens and tens of millions in the latter part of my career, his response was always the same. I, I trust you and your team. If it's good for the business, you have my support. You know, it's and, interesting, uh, so, it's interesting so how, Steve, about here, me, Yeah, go ahead. Let me just make one comment about So how do you think I behaved with my team? Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. Same way. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's exactly uh, you right. You know, I mean, in that case, you, you said, boy, my boss trusts me. My boss allows me to make mistakes. Probably doesn't want you to make the same one twice. But, but nope. you know, and I've always said, if you're not making any mistakes, you're probably not trying. Um, you're playing it too safely. But then you are able to take that learning all the way down to your team. That's right. And then you tell the David Sawyers of the world and the other guys, hey, hey, I trust you. Let's, that's exactly right. And, and, and that's a wonderful culture. Well, it even starts before that. It starts with the way I recruit and the way I select talent. I mean, I I learned to do it the way he did it. Um, be very proactive with looking for talent. Always have your eye open for talent. Be be diligent in the process. Do your do your homework. Um, but then when you when you feel like you've gotten the right person. Coach them, coach them on the culture, coach them on strategy, work with them on strategy, but then let them, let them go. Well, and, you, yeah, uh, you're, I, you're kind I, of saying you built, and, and the company built the culture, I, I call it one brick at a time. It was really yeah. one human being at a time. One person. That's what Truett meant. We don't, we don't train culture. We hire it or we select it. You, the people you attract to the business either uh, – uh, help the culture or damage it. And, um, you, you gotta, eventually you gotta, you gotta clarify, you gotta codify the culture in words. And trust me, we did that. And I unpacked that a lot in the book. We got the culture codified in words because the bigger you get, you gotta be very clear about what your purpose is, what your core values are and why what what the what the expectation is of what we're trying to do in the marketplace you do those things well then people then people know what the box top is on how to do, form strategy and how to do their work um but yes absolutely culture is shaped by who you invite into the business <laughs> the very thing Truett said to me in that last interview and and he would i will tell you that he and jimmy collins uh, who was the CEO uh, until 19, uh, until 2001. Um, they focused principally on managing the culture. Uh, they left, they left strategic formation and execution that those to those that they had hired got guys and gals like me. So um, 
they they role modeled intentionally role modeled the way they wanted us to lead and i think that's one of the reasons chick-fil-a has continued to prosper so well they're into the second and the third generation of leaders both within the kathy family and with um, non-family members and you got people in there that have not just grown up in the culture but have seen it formulated heard it preached um and I've seen it lived out by leaders and it culture is contagious. That's both good or bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. fortunately so far, I think they are managing, ma- managing the culture in a way that is contagious in a very positive, uh, high momentum way. I mean, their, their guest experiences continue to be great. Their sales volumes are off the chart. They haven't, they're, they're not messing with the, the core foundational tenets of the business, right down to the operator model, and the customer continues to re- reward them. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. A lot of businesses historically have failed at the third generation. That's right. Uh, I mean, I've seen that just repeatedly in that. And, and, and one of the wonderful stories that Bill Battle, my good friend Bill Battle, told me, he, yes. said, he said, we had one of the one of Truett's grandkids as an intern at CLC. And, and he came to me one day and said, uh, Coach, Coach Battle, I, I, if it's okay, I need to miss um, on Monday. And he said, sure, that'll be fine. What are, you, what are you doing? He said, well, my granddaddy's taking all of the grandchildren to the White House for the National Day of Prayer. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Now you were talking about culture, and you want yeah. to talk about culture from the top down. Yeah, I mean, I thought I love that story. I mean, well, true, could have the, the real point of you telling that story. True, it could have gone alone. Yeah, yeah. But he took he took second and third generation family. I think he even took one or two staff members. I know he took I know he took one of my direct reports, Don Perry, who was VP of Public Relations. Yep. But you're absolutely right. That's a good illustration. Yeah, it's a great illustration. And, the other thing, Steve, I, I found in your book, and I think talking to you today, I understand, <clears throat> is when you looked for outside resources, <clears throat> you looked for the same characteristics yeah, as right. you did in internal. I mean, I'm a big Stan Richards fan. I was in Dallas yes. for a number of years. The culture of the Richards group was unique to, in the yep. advertising industry, and they became a great partner of yours. Yes, Talk a little did. bit about that. Well, it wasn't until the late 1990s that we even needed an ad agency because we were, as you well remember, we were principally based in malls for years. And even after we went out on the street in the mid-80s, it wasn't until the mid-90s that we had enough stores that warranted uh, traditional advertising even being considered. We were, we were street-level street marketers. But we had, by the 96, I think, we had over 500 stores, principally in the southeast. We were toying with the idea of uh, sponsoring the Peach Bowl, becoming the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, our first foray into any sort of regional brand um, presence. And we knew that if we got involved with with the bowl, we were going to need great advertising um, because we were certainly going to be on the air. But we also had enough stores in about 20 markets that warranted some form of what I call brand air cover advertising 
and so we did an agency search. Uh, David and his David Sayers and his team led that search. We got it down to three shops, and the Richards Group was the one we pr- picked. And to your your point, we picked them principally on on two issues. One, they had an incredible track record of innovative, out of the box, creative. And we knew that if our advertising looked and smelled and sounded like traditional fast food advertising, we would be totally lost. Secondly, their culture was all about attracting great talent and keeping it, which is a complete oxymoron for what most ad agencies do. Um, Stan had this passion for creative product, and he was willing to attract great people, keep them, give them great assignments. <clears throat> and so we selected them. Um, and and the, 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 the cherry on top was when Stan told us in the last meeting we had with him, if you pick us, you're not going to see any creative that I've not personally seen and, and approved. Well, the difference again, Chick-fil-A, privately held company, Richard's group, privately yep, held company, privately not, part of, a, not yep. part of a holding company, that's not, right. a, that's not right. looking at the second quarter numbers. So, yeah, That's right. So he took a long-term <clears throat> view of brand development. We were taking a long-term view of brand development. We weren't looking for quick fixes through advertising. And, of course, it led to our, our experimentation with 3D billboards. Uh, we were into that for about nine months when they came back with the Eat More Chicken idea from the cows. Uh, we ran that in our top 20 markets. It was a huge hit. We went back to them and said, Stan, we think you got something here that's bigger than a billboard idea. Can you work on it for two or three months and see if we can't develop a campaign around the whole idea of eat more chicken? And the rest was history. Um, they did it. They showed us stuff and, and three months later that was off the charts and we when I left, we've been using them, and we've been developing the cow creative for 22 years. Yeah, I always said it. you when when you know you have a hit when consumers look forward to the next oh, execution. Yeah. Can't wait yes. to see what the cows are going to do next. Yes, I mean, yes, that's pretty they, special. They became iconic. They, you know, we <laughs> had two icons in business when I left: Truett and the cows, and uh, they they put us on the map. Uh, now, college football was a, a great platform for that creative, but we were already out there using billboards and other other vehicles for the cows to you know, spin their message. And uh, I give Stan and his team all the credit. They they came out with it. They were innovative. They kept it fresh. They 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 made it re- made it relevant to a cross section of audiences. And they never tried to force any creative down our throat that we didn't like. And quite frankly, for me, my my litmus test for their creative was pretty simple, Rick. If I didn't laugh, I didn't like it. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> if it, I mean, didn't, if yeah. it didn't make me laugh, then it wasn't on strategy. You know, sometimes and, don't uh, you think, Steve, marketers, we overthink things. Oh I God. mean, you know, at some point, oh, if, if yeah. we don't like it, nobody else is going to like it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean. if, it, if it was on strategy, that's great. But if it didn't make it didn't make me and the others laugh, we we didn't do it. And yeah. um, and then of course the customers are always the final litmus test because they they love the campaign they wear the creative they show up on cow appreciation day by the millions and 
buy millions of cow calendars, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it was a great ride. Sure was. Well, listen, we got a lot to talk about. I'm, I'm going to need to bring you back for uh, next week, too, if you don't mind. And because um, mm-hmm. and I want to talk, I want to come back uh, in next week's show. Start with college football, with the way that you uniquely use college football. And I also want to talk about this kind of this giving back culture of Chick-fil-A, this, this, this community service of, uh, yep. of giving back. So we'll do that next, uh, next time. And, uh, but for today, I thank you for being with us from oh, the bridge. It was, it was my honor. I look forward to next week. Thanks pal. We've talked about food and more food on today's show. But let's close anyway with another place to eat on the road with Rick. When I was a kid growing up in Atlanta, there actually was a restaurant besides Chick-fil-A that served Chick-fil-A. That's right. For a few years, Truett Cathy actually licensed the product to a small group of restaurants. One such lucky place was the Old Hickory House. At one time, there were several of these restaurants throughout Metro Atlanta. In fact, our CEO and my business partner, Rob Temple's dad, actually worked for the Old Hickory House at one time. Well, there is still one left standing in Tucker, Georgia. Tucker is a suburb of Atlanta in DeKalb County. It was started in 1955, which was the year after I was born. They still serve the same great food. Barbecue, of course, it is the old Hickory House. But they also serve maybe the best Brunswick stew I've ever had. Now, for my Yankee friends, you may not know what Brunswick stew is. And there's a debate about whether it came from Brunswick, Georgia, or Brunswick County, Virginia. But nevertheless, Brunswick stew is a stew made of chicken and pork and vegetables and barbecue sauce that is unbelievably good. And the best that I've ever had is at this old Hickory House. They also have great squash casserole and other vegetables, plus fruit cobblers and wonderful banana pudding. They also serve a terrific southern breakfast with eggs, grits, sausage, and biscuits. Yes, it's old school, just like me, on the road with Rick. Well, that's it for today. I hope you like the show. We'll be back next week and continue our discussions with Steve Robinson. We'll see you then. (laughs) 